This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 227. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Mr. Jacob Paulson. Welcome. Thanks, Riley, for having me on. Yeah, it's it's an honor and a pleasure, really. <laughs> What's up, dude? So, guys, day in paradise. <laughs> uh, yeah, a day in paradise, that's for sure. Uh, so, Jacob and I were just talking a moment ago about the Triple Guardian, which was uh, three days of defensive handgun training. Uh, it's a new curriculum that ConcealedCarry.com is rolling out. We've taught taught the first course, which is Guardian, Guardian Essentials Pistol, a couple of times, uh, you know, and working through some, some tweaks and some uh, improvements on that. But over the weekend, we taught for the first time ever the level two and level three portions of that course. Uh, Guardian Standards Pistol is the, is the level two and Guardian Breakthrough, the level three. And uh, even though it was cold, wet, rainy, whatever, it was hot the first day, right? And then it, the next day was kind of like, oh, okay, this is tolerable. It was cloudy, and I think we got misted a little bit. It started to rain at the end of the day, and then Saturday just just sucked. So it, it's weird to have like a sunburn, you know, and then like the next two days are freezing. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Anyway, uh, so welcome to the show today. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Guardian Nation, guardiannation.com. And I want to highlight the fact that we've got coming up on Wednesday night this week. So that's tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Wednesday, what is that? May 23rd, 7 p.m. We have this month's Guardian Nation live event. And uh, this month we will be hosting John Korea of active self-protection. So we will welcome John and that should be a good time. So if uh, you are a Guardian Nation member, uh, you already have and are granted free access to that live broadcast event. And uh, if you are not, then you got to go check out Guardian Nation. Also, uh, if you can't join us tomorrow evening, you can always access the entire library, which is getting kind of big now, Jacob. It's somewhat impressive when you go look there because there's hours and hours and hours of content with top top people in the industry. We've got uh, uh, Kyle Lamb, of course, and he was one of our first ones. Uh, he's a good friend of ours. Mike Seeklander joined us. We've had Rob Latham. We've had, uh, let's see, recently we had Jeff Gonzalez. We had Beth Alcazar from the USCCA. We've had Tim Schmidt from the USCCA. He's even been a guest on Guardian nation live and uh so tomorrow john korea come check it out join us that's your chance to see face to face firsthand uh well maybe not firsthand uh, uh, maybe it's not your first time you've seen these people but that'll be your ch chance to ask questions and participate directly in that event so jacob i look forward to doing that with you oh hey two other sponsors too i want to mention and i want you to hi highlight uh these because uh, I think I see you kind of as the expert 
in this category. Uh, they're two products that you're you're more familiar with than I am even familiar with, although I'm fairly familiar with the uh, Glock E-Trainer. But we've got uh, today's episode brought to you by Glock E-Trainer and the Barrel Block. Yeah, and I'd show them to everybody uh, here on the video if I had them handy, but I haven't unpacked that stuff from uh, the truck since our class over the weekend. But the Glock E-Trainer is this clever little device that is installed on the slide of your Glock, no disassembly required. And it makes it so the trigger can be repeatedly pressed without it uh, breaking or needing to reset. In fact, I was talking about this yesterday. It was kind of funny because um, every once in a while we'll get someone who says, well, what's the point of that? Because, you know, if you install it, then you don't have the feeling of the take up and the break and the reset. And that's the whole point. And it's um, actually not the whole point of dry fire. There's a lot of other things that we're trying to achieve with dry fire also. And I might add that the biggest challenge that, well, I don't know about the biggest, but one significant challenge that we have when we do dry fire practice uh, with any gun, and certainly any striker fire gun, including a Glock, is that every time you press the trigger, you have to rack the slide. And that would seem like it kind of defeats the point too, doesn't it? That's a horrible training scar. So anyway, the Glocky Trainer is designed to solve that problem. By installing it, a person does not need to rack the slide and reset the trigger with every trigger press. And the barrel block, I'll, maybe I'll talk more about that one toward the end of the episode. Awesome. Cool, boss. Well, folks, uh, that brings us up to the first segment of today's episode, which is this week's Case of the Week with Mr. Andrew Branca from Law of Self-Defense. This is a, a another good one, I'm sure. Uh, so you're going to want to tune in. Queuing it up now. Thanks for joining us for the Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. This week's Case of the Week is State v. Iverson out of the Idaho Court of Appeals in a decision handed down in 2014. It involves a prosecutor who successfully uses a defendant's black belt in Taekwondo against him in criminal trial for battery against the victim of his use of force. The victim in this case heard that his ex-girlfriend had gotten into an altercation with her new boyfriend, the defendant in this case. The victim and a large male friend drove to the apartment where the girlfriend and defendant lived together. And as the male friend sat in the car parked at the curb, the victim stood outside beside the car talking on the phone. The defendant approached, grabbed the victim's phone and threw it in the street and initiated a verbal altercation. The victim's friend emerged from the car and approached them, at which point the defendant punched the victim in the face. That single punch would result in multiple facial fractures and require surgery and the insertion of titanium plates and screws to repair the damage. The defendant was charged with battery and subjected to a jury trial. In that trial, the defendant would testify in his own defense, and his legal defense was self-defense. In particular, he would argue that although he didn't actually feel threatened by the victim specifically, he felt threatened generally when the victim's large friend approached them. This decision noted that, quote, the defendant testified that he felt it necessary to punch the victim because he could not turn his back on the victim in order to defend himself against the victim's friend, close quote. At trial, the prosecution wanted to emphasize to the jury the extent of the victim's injuries, arguing that the severity of the injuries demonstrated that even if the defendant had been justified in using some force in self-defense, the actual degree of force he used was excessive. 
Recall that force is categorized in terms of its intensity by placing it into one of two buckets, the deadly force bucket or the non-deadly force bucket. The deadly force bucket includes, naturally, force capable of causing death, but it's actually defined more broadly than that to include force capable of causing serious bodily injury. The other bucket is the non-deadly force bucket, which simply includes all lesser degrees of force. Now, as a general legal principle, the element of proportionality of a self-defense claim requires that a defender can use deadly defensive force only to stop a deadly force attack. If the defender is facing only a non-deadly force attack, he's limited to using only non-deadly defensive force. If deadly defensive force is used against a non-deadly attack, that defensive force is disproportional, excessive, and unlawful. The prosecution's argument in this case is essentially that the severity of the injuries suffered by the victim qualified as serious bodily harm, and that placed the defendant's force into the deadly force bucket of intensity. In order for that use of deadly defensive force to be justified, the defendant must have been facing a deadly force threat. Although the defendant may have been facing some degree of threat from the victim and his friend, the prosecution argues that there was zero evidence in this case that the defendant was facing a deadly force threat. As a result, they argued, his use of deadly defensive force, force capable of causing the victim's serious bodily injury, was disproportional, excessive, and unlawful. The defendant countered this argument by the prosecutor by claiming that the intensity of the injuries caused by his one punch was essentially a freak event and that he had no reason to believe that the resulting injuries would be so severe. After all, most barehanded punches do not cause death or serious bodily injury, so he should be permitted to believe his punch would not do so and that therefore his punch only qualified as non-deadly force. This is where the defendant's martial arts training is brought into the argument by the prosecutor. During closing argument, the prosecutor made the following statement, quote, Now, I'm not a doctor, I don't have medical training, and I don't if, and know if any of you do, so I don't know exactly what we're talking about, but I do know that we're talking about numerous fractures. We're talking about some serious bodily harm. I would submit to you that this is excessive force, and I would also submit to you that the defendant, given the kind of training he had as a black belt in Taekwondo, understood that this is the sort of thing that's going to result from the blow that he landed. He acknowledged that he's been doing this for a long time. Close quote. The defendant objected to the statement at trial, but it was permitted by the trial judge. After the defendant was convicted and he appealed his conviction, in part on this claimed error, the appellate court in this decision agreed with the trial judge in affirming the defendant's conviction, ruling, quote, the prosecutor's statement was a permissible inference from the evidence presented at trial. Specifically, the defendant testified he was a first-degree black belt in Taekwondo and had been trained in proper technique and control in regard to how to properly punch someone. Based on this training, it was reasonable for the prosecutor to infer and argue to the jury that the defendant knew the potential seriousness of the injuries he could inflict on the victim with a punch to the face. Close quote. So if you've ever wondered if your martial arts training could be, quote, used against you in court, the answer is almost always going to be yes. If by used against you in court, you mean introduced into evidence by the prosecution in order to make you look bad to the jury. 
But that's not an argument for not getting training. It's not prudent to limit your ability to win the physical fight merely out of concern that it might be used against you in the legal fight. It is an argument, however, for recognizing that if you do have specialized knowledge, training, skills, or experience, you can and will be held to the legal standard of someone who possesses such specialized knowledge, training, skills, and experience. So conduct yourself accordingly. As always, I encourage all of you to read this case in its entirety, and you can do that by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash Iverson. That's I-V-E-R-S-O-N. If you enjoy this content, I invite you to join us for the Law of Self-Defense live show every Wednesday, 2 p.m. Eastern. It's totally free to either participate live or to watch the recording after each show. For more information, point your browser to lawselfdefense.com forward slash show. Remember, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. What's this, Jacob? Wisps, Asiago, and Pepper Jack cheese crisps. What does that have to do with the case of the week, man? He, he, he's muted. You're muted. You you know you're muted, right? Oh, sorry. There so you go. These are. I just I just wanted you to know how delicious these were. <laughs> okay, they're really good. I'm sitting here eating these. And I'm like, wow, these are so good. <laughs> Everybody should try these. This is going to be my pick of the week, I think. <laughs> so. Jacob, put the food away. Let's now get into this week's news. <laughs> Came on. All right, here we go. No guarantees I won't eat more, though. <laughs> First up, uh, you know, I saw this all over social media, people making fun of it, uh, people angry at it. Um, all kinds of different comments and things. And so this first story uh, was reported on USA, USA Today, and this was actually uh, the response to the Santa Fe, Texas shooting that took place, uh, obviously, just a few days ago now. And uh, uh, I think it was, what, Friday, I think it was, Jacob? We were, we were teaching day two uh, of our Triple Guardian course, and, and we saw the, the, the news reports coming in. And, of course, it's uh, heartbreaking every time we have these school shootings. We, we don't like these any more than anybody, you know, anybody else does. Uh, but uh, anyway, USA Today published probably one of the most ridiculously dumb analysis analysis analyses whatever of the uh of what happened there in Santa Fe Texas that I've I've ever heard because their take one of the first things that they had to say about this shooting was well the weapons used in this attack was a shotgun or were a shotgun and pistol and those are less lethal than an AR-15 or an uh, assault rifle, and and that, that that was the only takeaway. I mean, that, that USA Today could could pull out of this. This doesn't fit the narrative. This seems a little odd. Um, but you know, the interesting thing, guys, is that these are less lethal, and thus, if it had been an assault rifle, it would have been way worse. Yeah, you know, and they don't they don't make a claim. You know, they're, they're not making that claim based on like muzzle velocity or something. The, the claim is based on what they say here. They say, well, high-powered rifles such as the AR-15 can be fired more than twice as fast as most handguns. I don't know where that. I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> um, also, they say 
The standard magazine for an AR-15 holds 30 rounds, allowing a shooter to continue firing uninterrupted for longer, making the weapon more lethal than other firearms. So, um, yeah, that doesn't... Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I guess... so. There, there's so, some I, truth to that. I mean... There's some truth, but does that make it more lethal? I, I mean, I, I, maybe, right. maybe it's semantics. I mean, so there's some semantics question here about, you know, the, the term lethal uh, inherently, whether or not that has anything to do with... Uh, yeah. With with you know, mag capacity and speed or rate of fire, right, is definitely arguable. But but beyond that, regardless, uh, I think that we have that we have a different challenge here. And one is that to suggest the AR-15 has a higher rate of fa- fire than most handguns, I think, is a claim that would be different, uh, difficult to yeah. completely substantiate. You know, and, you know, what's interesting here? I mean, so here's the thing, right? Lethality of, of a firearm is not just determined by rate of fire. It's not just determined by capacity. Those are factors for sure, but it's more than that. And the media, of course, doesn't understand this. It, it is, uh, you know, the, the the caliber, if you will, the the size of the round, the weight of the bullet, the velocity. Uh, uh, if, in the case of a shotgun, I mean, consider this. I mean, a shotgun, it, it, it could have, I mean, a shotgun could be more lethal or less lethal depending on the load that's used even i mean just right within that same platform a 12 gauge shotgun if you're using birdshot it can still be very lethal absolutely but a birdshot is less would probably be considered less lethal than if you're using double lot buckshot right and so i mean it's it's way more there's way more factors to determining the lethality of a weapon than what they pull out in this article here. The rate of fire and mag capacity. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, it's ridiculous what they said about as far as, well, an AR-15, you can fire twice as fast, basically, as a pistol. Um, I don't know, Jacob, did you see my split times uh, in the course over the weekend? You know, some well, of those drills. Most handguns, too. They say most handguns. <laughs> word they use. Sure, sure. Uh, just ask Jerry Michalik. Uh, he can fire any handgun pretty much at like 11, 12 hundredths of, of, of a second split. Uh, yeah. yeah. And he could do the same thing with an AR. Yeah, but that, I mean, my, my biggest issue is the semantics where I mean, we're talking about lethality. We're talking about the likelihood of dying when impacted with a round. And to me, that has nothing to do with gun as it does to do with, you know, caliber in the case of shotgun you made some good points about shotguns but anyway i just i think it's ridiculous to, to call ar-15 a high-powered rifle and to call it more lethal you know in this context yeah now i i don't know for sure because we don't have a ton of details yet it depends on how many shots uh or how long this shooter was able to continue this attack with the shotgun but guys shotguns at close range arguably are way more lethal than an AR-15, right? So, yeah, that just right there alone. I mean, if anybody knows anything about a shotgun and what it's capable of doing, then that should be all you need to know. That what the the USA Today put out in this article was completely ridiculous. Okay, and chances are it could be very much argued that the fact that he used a shotgun is the reason that there there are as many dead as there are. Unfortunately. Okay, so it just comes back to the point. We know we're preaching to the choir that the the we- it's not the weapon that really matters or that counts. Uh, we can outlaw all kinds of things, and we're still going to see really terrible, horrible shootings and stuff. Um, and by the way, I think yesterday there was uh, some kind of act. Uh, I don't know if active shooter is the right description for it now, but in Marseille, France, yesterday there was some 
I think they're describing them as gang members now that had AK-47s that shot up some mansion palace sort of thing and took somebody into, into you know, they, they abducted somebody and cops got in a shootout with these several gang members. Like I said, they're, they're describing them as gang members. I don't know. It sounded like they might have been more like terrorists, but those guys were packing AK-47s in France. Anyway, just something to think about. Yeah. On to, so after Parkland and clearly now after this shooting in Texas, now this one's not probably getting obviously the attention that Parkland got because it doesn't fit the narrative as well as Parkland does. Um, But uh, obviously there's still plenty of cries for gun control. Now, it was already in the works. It was probably more of a response to Parkland than anything. And we see now that officially, uh, several days ago now, the uh, I think it was actually a week ago now, it was last Tuesday, Boulder City Council, this is Boulder, Colorado. I know, shocker to some of you that are familiar with, with Boulder. <laughs> they have now instituted an assault rifles ban. And magazine capacity. Yep, yep. And so the... The three things here, this is on our site, concealedcarry.com. Uh, th- the three things that were changed in this ordinance is a magazine cap- cap- uh, capacity of more than 10 rounds of ammunition is banned. Any feature, I love that. This is one of my favorite laws that, you know, hails back to the original assault weapons ban, uh, you know, that we had back in the 90s. Any feature, such as a protruding grip that can be held by the non-trigger hand. Non-trigger. That's great. How about we might start saying that in classes. <laughs> All right, everybody, we're going to practice some non-trigger reloads. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I, I just, I can't quite wrap my head around it, Jacob. Like, why are they so, why are they so stuck on, on the, oh, I know why. Because it looks scary. <laughs> you know what? So I used to, I used to use a, uh, well, I still kind of do use a foregrip, you know, a vertical grip on my uh, AR. Um, I, I've changed the way I use it because you know when you're young and you're stupid and you don't know what you're doing. Um, the way I used a vertical grip. Now it's still an, an appropriate way to use a vertical grip on on the front of an AR-15, and that is to just simply grip it. You know, grab onto it with your support hand, and away you go. And it works great. And depending on how you have your weapon mounted light, uh, where it's actually mounted, and how you use that, a vertical grip can be uh, a great use for that sort of thing. Um, I actually use now my vertical grip. Vertical grip. It's a it's a shorter one now. I used to have this big long one. Now I've got just a little short one. I actually use it as like an index point and as a, as something to kind of kind of like hold on to and pull back in my sh- into my shoulder. Um, yeah, can it make me help me shoot better? Well, obviously I put accessories on my carbine that I think will help me shoot better. Um, but does it have any bearing on making our community safer or not? No. (laughs) And then the final thing, by the way, that was outlawed is any folding telescoping or thumb hole stock. So basically you can't have an assault rifle that meets the definition of having any of these things. Okay. Um, now they do have a grandfather clause, which was anything purchased before the ban, uh, citizens are allowed to still retain those, but they've got to get a certificate from the Boulder police department to be able to, uh, legally, uh, maintain control and ownership and possession of those. So all out registration of those assault weapons, so-called assault weapons. Now here's, here's a funny one. So 
<laughs> the way that the law reads, it, while it's illegal to have a magazine that holds more than 10 rounds in a rifle, it is not illegal to have a magazine that holds up to 15 rounds in a handgun. So I find it completely ironic that right. in, a, in, a, in your rifle, you can only have 10-round mags, but in your handgun, you can have 15-round mags. That's just fine. Per the uh, state statute. In case, yeah, state, yeah, state statute limits us to 15 in a handgun. Um, I also find it interesting this ordinance only applies to Boulder citizens. So I live, what, Riley, like 10 minutes tops from You're Boulder. You're super close. Very close to Boulder. So if I take my AR and I throw it in the back seat and cruise through Boulder, that's totally A-OK. Because yeah. I'm, I'm not a resident of Boulder. So that, that's cool. I'm, yeah. I'm allowed to have my, my AR in Boulder. To be honest with you, I was actually really surprised and also relieved at that because there's always this thing in the back of my mind, you know, I I, I got to travel to a, a class or a match, a three gun match or something. And dude, I'm, I'm going with my AR and understand this Denver city limits are freaking crazy. There's this little spindly leg of Denver that like comes out almost to where I am. It's South of me. And if I go straight South on the main road that I use frequently to, you know, navigate the city here, um, I go south like two miles and I cross through this like probably quarter mile wide uh, section of Denver and technically break the law driving through there with my AR in my truck. And that that's uh, that to me, that's insane, you know, like that because because Denver has an assault an assault weapons ban. Right. Um, so I was surprised they they put that in there. And once again. If you listen to the city council people, they say this is an ordinance that they need to increase safety of their of their city. Well, then, um, hmm, double standard much? As far as like, if, if it's all about safety, then all out ban them and don't even allow grandfathering. And don't even let anybody to come into your city with them. Course. Yeah, it's ornamental at best. Yeah, it's it's like admitting the fact that you know you can't actually prohibit people from bringing these types of weapons into your community. Yep. So, in which even if you have the ban, you still can't prevent people from bringing them in. Gun control do. does not work. We do have a lawsuit against this, so we'll see where that ends yep. up. Too. Yep. Uh, a gentleman that I'm a, a big fan of, uh, uh, John Caldera. Uh, he's well known in the area. He's a longtime Boulderite, and uh, he frequently appears on television and radio in the in the local area. He's very conservative uh, and very much pro gun. Uh, he's uh, involved in that lawsuit, and we'll see where it goes. And you know, the the one thing that we can hope for is that he gets a favorable um, court, probably an appeals court. Maybe the see because Colorado Supreme Court has already has already ruled on this. And so I think it's got to go above that to a federal level to where uh, hopefully get something fa- favorable and they're able to overturn this. And then then the best thing you can hope for is that the, the Supreme Court of the U.S. refuses to take up the case. In other words, allowing the federal court decision to stand. Because uh, I don't have the faith. Uh, I, to, I'm sorry, guys. Based on uh, past history with the Supreme Court, uh, uh, that that this is going to go the direction we want it to go. But anyway, time will tell. We'll follow it. Back now to the uh, Texas, the Santa Fe, Texas shooting. 
Um, and we talked about uh, the, the USA Today story, but now I want to focus a little bit more on some of the details as far as I really want to focus on the heroes, the response to that shooting, Jacob. Uh, what we know now is the timeline is basically, I mean, the rough timeline is that from the time this individual, and we will not, he shall remain unnamed, from the time that he began firing to the time that officers were able to respond was about four minutes. And we had two resource officers that were able to respond. Um, frankly, I, I think it's just, it's, it's too bad it took that long to a degree. Like if you had a school resource officer already right there somewhere nearby, you know, uh, a minute or two away, but Hey, guess what? Four minutes. That's not too bad because I think the average response time is more like nine minutes, uh, for school shootings. Anyway, four minutes, two school, uh, resource officers respond. They engaged with him and likely kept him contained and engaged, thus saving lives. And that is the big takeaway is that as far as limiting the damage, once a school shooting begins, it's all about time. The, the ability to counter that shooter quickly. Right, Jacob? Sorry. I, <laughs> we, we hit the button at the same time. Yeah, I was trying no, to help you out. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. It is, it is about that engagement. And in this case, you have two resource officers that engaged. They were unable to stop the shooter entirely, but they were able to... Um, I guess, hold him at bay, if you want to use that term. I mean, they stopped him from 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 doing more damage, um, but they, you know, alone, they were unable to take him into custody. So they, uh, from how I read it, essentially, it sounds like to some degree, they got to a point where the shooter was in a classroom and isolated and they were in the hallway and the shooter was unable to, you know, escape and more, you know, 200 total law enforcement officers ended up responding and yeah. eventually there was just enough people to be able to take this dude into custody. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Um, the entire ordeal, it says, according to this article um, on uh, ABC7NY.com, I'm not sure why it's a New York site, but <laughs> uh, obviously this is a story that's been reported all over the place. Um, but uh, it, 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 the, entire, the, the entire ordeal lasted about 25 minutes, it says. Uh, that's, that's a pretty protracted, uh, as far as length, you know, the, of a gunfight. Uh, if they responded within four minutes, um, but it it talks about it, you know, it, it it gave the opportunity for teachers and students to get away and to get out of the area, while law enforcement kept him at bay. Contrast this with the response that we saw in Parkland, where we had a, a resource officer that refused to go in and engage the shooter. Uh, and then we had others that showed up and also were told or refused. Basically, they were told to not go in and engage the shooter. And we also had Coral Springs Police Department in the Parkland shooting shooter, which not their jurisdiction, but they were able to respond there faster than some of the Broward County people were able to respond. And they were told to go home, right? And here we see law enforcement willing and able, and you know, they, they responded. They showed up. And by doing so, we kept this minimized. And that's 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 really really key, and we applaud the 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 true proper heroes in this incident. Um, and so, yeah. Now on to this next one, Jacob. This was this is really kind of an interesting article. Psychologytoday.com, an article by Dale Hartley, PhD. And uh, the title here is "What the Texas School Shooting Suspects Pins," and I think by 
that I I think he was referring to um, uh, uh, social media analysis of you know trying to look into the background of the shooter, right? Um, what his pins tell us, and it says here from Doctor Park Dietz's mouth to God's ear. When we engage in an obsessive questioning of why a shooter did it, we are granting their exact wish. And Dr. Dietz is a forensic psychiatrist and researcher, has personally evaluated many mass murders, and has provided expert testimony in numerous criminal trials. His conclusion, and here I quote from Hamlet rather than Dietz, though this be madness, yet there is method in it. And so this is... is, uh, I think there's some truth here, Jacob. I'd like to hear your analysis. I know you dived into this article somewhat, uh, but uh, what do you think? When we engage in an obsessive questioning of why a shooter did it, we are granting their exact wish. I think this is super fair. I don't think it also fully um, explains all shooters. I think, sure. for example, if you look at like this, the uh, Sutherland Springs shooter, you know, where it's a little bit more motivated and someone, an individual is being targeted. You know, sometimes you have domestic incidents where uh, there's a specific person or people that are being targeted. And then you just have a bunch of innocent people who get, you know, essentially get pulled into the crossfire as an act of lunacy. But when we look at these, most of these school shootings where it's, it is significantly so more random, it's just about, um, you know, going and creating fame for oneself then yeah, we we have a problem if we essentially do exactly what they want, right? If if the lunacy, if the sick individual decides, ultimately what I want most is two things. One, for everyone to know why, you know, why I do what I do because, you know, the world hates me or because, you know, whatever, you know, thing, true or not, that that person believes that they they have a message that they want to communicate, right? They have some message. Maybe that message is about how, you know, we're all, you know, evil or some other sick lunacy idea. It doesn't really matter, but they have some message they really want communicated and they don't know how to get that message out. And second, they want, they want to be famous. Sure. They want to be famous. They, they want their, their face on, on CNN tonight. And um, they want their name to be on Wikipedia, have its own page. And so ultimately after every single one of these shootings, all the time that we spend, looking at why they did what they did and talking about their manifesto or their pin or their social media post or the video that they sent to whoever just before they went on their rampage. Um, and, and then you know, we're, we're, we're granting their exact wish. We're doing exactly what they want. Now, and I, and I think that it's important to understand there's a distinction here between you know, the, the, the federal you know, law enforcement officers or the people who are in charge of trying to make this stuff not happen again. It's important to understand that they have to analyze all that stuff and they can do that outside of the public eye, right? Because that's what the shooter wants. The shooter wants for everyone on planet Earth to hear their message. And we, we can have the right people study and analyze these situations so we can help these people in the future or prevent these kinds of incidents without shouting their message from the rooftop and putting their face on the television. Yeah. So anyway, I think this is something that is, 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 uh, is a message that's getting bigger and stronger all the time. I think it's starting to bubble up and what I mean by that is we're getting a little bit closer, but we're still a little ways away from the point where uh, news agencies and journalists and associations and media properties commit to not fulfilling the dreams of these lunatics. Right. Um, there, there are ethics in journalism already for some other things. Uh, you know, having worked at 
in in media properties in my life. You know, we, we for example, you media companies know that they never ever ever mention the names of people who commit suicide. They never they're not even supposed to cover uh, juvenile suicides in the in the media because they think that it has it was proven many years ago that that can encourage other people to commit suicide. They're also not supposed to report on juvenile runaways. Uh, in the media, there's separate systems for that, Amber Alerts and things, but the, the the major news media is not supposed to report on runaways because, again, it might encourage more runaways. So imagine that we're we're willing to have, you know, some industry standard um, ethical, uh, you know, standards related to suicides and to runaways. But, you know, when it comes to these you know, active shooters or mass murderers, you know, no one's willing to step up and be the first one to take a stand and say, our, our, our media property for now on will not do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's something I've been uh, thinking about, Jacob, uh, is uh, we, we hear this talked about, you know, that they, they are seeking fame. And I'm thinking, is it really that artificial or that uh, uh, unsubstantial that, because that, that, you know, it's fame, fame is fleeting, right? Like, um, and, and maybe in some cases it is. But why the fame? Why why would they like the notoriety? And as I as I I'm not a psychologist or anything, right? But as I'm thinking about it, what do we see from a lot of these shooters? A lot of times they can they can be uh, social outcasts. They've been marginalized by their society that's around them. Uh, their their social relationships are, you know, like just, there's sometimes a lot of awkwardness there or something's missing or they're just not clicking with their community. I I don't think you can go and commit mass murder unless you get to a point where you view the people in your life, in your life as things, right? Like you, you, you no longer have any empathy or any care for those around you, the people, I mean, cause a lot of times we see other uh, major shootings, mass shootings, where the individual starts out by murdering their own family, which should be their most basic form of social uh, uh, structure, right? Like that, that, that should be the people that actually they do care about and that surrounds them and loves them. Uh, and they start out murdering their family or parents, and then they go on to shoot up a school or shoot up a business or something, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, Clearly, for some reason, they've been marginalized, they've been separated, they've been isolated from uh, connection, you know, human social connection to a point now where they can go and commit this act. And I think by achieving that notoriety, it sort of, I think in their minds, probably helps them in some way to feel like they've been validated. I mean, is that, do you, do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think. I think it, I think there's a lot to that. I think that they also you know, these people see themselves um, as as I'm trying to think of the right word you know messengers. You know they they think that there's something really important that needs to get out there, and they have a message, and they think that this this will get attention. That now everybody will hear me. Now everybody will hear what I have to say. This is what it takes to get everyone to listen. Yeah. And as long as I'm going to do it, the bigger and better I do it, you know, the better my message will get spread. And yeah, here we go. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think the big takeaway, by the way, uh, as it relates to this article, and what can each of us do? What can you listening to the podcast right now do? And I would say we could probably push our local media or and even national media. 
to follow the guidelines that an organization known as No Notoriety, which was started by Tom and Karen Tavis, Tavis uh, their son was killed in the Aurora uh, movie theater shooting. And uh, uh, they started No Notoriety, nonotoriety.com, and they recommend the following things. Limit the name and likeness of the individual in reporting after initial identification, except when the alleged assailant is is still at large and in doing so would aid in the assailant's capture. Refuse to broadcast slash publish self-serving statements, photos, videos, and or manifestos made by the individual. Elevate the names and likenesses of all victims killed and or injured to send the message their lives are more important than the killer's actions. I, I support that wholeheartedly. Recognize that the prospect of infamy could serve as a motivating factor for other individuals to kill others and could inspire copycat crimes. Keep this responsibility in mind when reporting. And finally, agree to promote data and analysis from experts in mental health, public safety, and other relevant professions to support further steps to help eliminate the motivation behind mass murder. Recognize that the individual's name and likeness is irrelevant to media coverage of such acts unless the alleged assailant is at large. So I would encourage you to uh, all to reference nonotoriety.com and pass that along to your local media or any other media uh, outlets that uh, that you might you know that you feel inclined to do so and encourage them to get on board with um, following these kind of standards in their reporting of these types of events. Uh, I do believe that we've seen uh, the most recent kind of rash of of school shootings as a result of Parkland. Uh, I've talked about on the podcast before, um, diving into uh, the idea that the, what is it? The, um, I just had a brain fart. <laughs> it, it's the threshold of violence, okay? Uh, the theory of threshold of violence, where the more you see others doing that thing that you might already be fantasizing about, but not really capable of yourself yet carrying out, but as you see more and more of, of, of those around you or just in society that are jumping on that bandwagon wagon, the more likely you are to finally get over that uh, personal threshold of your of your own and go and commit that act for yourself. And so Park, Parkland was, I mean, and it's still in the news constantly and referenced all the time. And we have seen a number of shootings uh, since Parkland. Okay, so give that some thought. One thing, Jacob, that is being talked about in the current gun control debate is that this idea that there's these guns getting on the street that are unregistered or untraceable. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sure that there are those that are saying that they're unregistered, right? So we have this article from WJLA.com, which is an ABC affiliate station in uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, the title of this article is Ghost Guns, Untraceable Firearms in Hands of Hobbyists, Felons, and Children. And basically, it's a fairly lengthy article. Uh, it, it goes into fairly great detail explaining what an 80% lower receiver. Now, 80% is the is the guideline, if you will, or the, the level where the ATF determined that if, if a receiver is only 80% finished, then it is not classified yet as a firearm. Um, it doesn't have to be serialized, doesn't have to be um, uh, transferred in the same way that a gun is transferred. Uh, in other words, you can sell an 80% receiver to anybody. Uh, 
in theory, right? Um, that there's no there's no background check, there's no record necessarily of that that has to be made, and then it it would be incumbent on the recipient if they feel so inclined to uh, finish the completion of that receiver. Now, as citizens, as private indiv- you know individuals, private people, uh, we can actually get an 80% receiver. Actually, we can manufacture a firearm that is as long as it's for our personal use. We're not intending to uh, obviously use that in a crime. We're not going to sell that to another individual. We're not going to try to build guns on, you know, that, that where we are not ourselves licensed to do so to then profit from and sell. Then we can finish that receiver into a firearm. Okay. And the journalist behind this story actually followed through on that and purchased a uh, a Glock 19 ghost gun receiver, an 80% receiver, and built a gun with it. A uh, couple of interesting things noted in this is that they say that they, they did not install firing pins into this Glock 19 handgun, uh, completing it to the point of attaching the, tr- the upper barrel and trigger and handling the inoperable handgun, which at that point is legally considered a firearm under ATF rules to local police. <laughs> Jacob... I want to hear your thoughts on this, man. So, ghost guns. Yeah. I think the premise is the problem. I think that when someone reads this who is uninformed, they they read this in uh, with the understanding that these guns are hitting the streets, not in some database that they otherwise would be in if they were coming from a manufacturer and being sold through a dealer. And so inherently, I think that's that's the huge problem here is that if if you believe that there's some database with a list of guns in it and it's attached, you know, it's, it's just that, that list of guns attached to gun owners, or even that it's just there's a database with a list of guns at all, then then you're operating on a false premise. And then the idea of this ghost gun might uh, really freak a person out, a person you know who, who's uninformed. I say, well, oh my gosh, wait a minute. We, we'd, we must rely on this database of guns so we can't have guns going on the streets that aren't in said database. But it's just not true. There's, I mean, Fire and Motor Protection Act 1986 makes it a felony for any organization, uh, government, body, or otherwise to uh, build or maintain a list of firearms and their owners. And even if such a thing did exist, and, and there are some local municipalities who you know, have put up the finger to the Fire and Motor Protection Act and do it anyway, you know, Hawaii, parts of California, New York City, Massachusetts, et cetera. So there are a handful of jurisdictions who do have some sort of firearm, some form of firearm registration in place. But even where that exists, even if there was some database of guns that are manufactured, how is that, how is that even relevant? How, what, what good, what difference does it make? Because, you know, Riley, if you, if you own a gun and you sell it to me like now i have it like how what what was that what is the difference between me having that gun and me having a ghost gun as far as i'm concerned there, there is no difference even if there was a database uh so it, it's just i don't understand what the concern is exactly that that people might have unserialized sure. firearms I, I, my, my thought is so what like yep. how i don't i don't to me both as a gun owner from the inside or from the outside, I see no difference to a gun in my safe being serialized or not. It really doesn't bug me. And I know that you know the, the paranoid gun owner is going to say, but Jacob, if the government comes looking for all your guns, they're going to know about all the ones you have that are serialized. You know, you better have some that are off the books. It's like, no, they really don't actually know about any of the ones that I have that are serialized either. <laughs> um, so I, I'm really not concerned. I mean, 
at, at best, if they could su- subpoena, you know, Glock in Austria to, to, to supply the records of all the Cabela's they sold guns to, and then they could somehow subpoena C- Cabela's to give up all of the records of all the Glocks they ever sold, which are mostly on like pink, pink carbon copies that are decades old. Then somehow they might be able to follow that gun to the person who originally bought it from the dealer. But even yeah. then, that person's under no obligation to have any paperwork if they sell it to a different party. So I, I don't really understand it. And, and I'll add that I get really angry and frustrated by companies in our industry that sell ghost gun products. Like I got a, I got an email the other day from uh, protecting the name of these stupid people. I got an email from an organization. I'm on their email list. And it's like, buy our DVD today. We'll, this DVD will teach you all about how to build your own ghost guns completely off the books, unregistered. Like, well, um, I can just go buy a gun from Bass Pro Shops and it's not registered. So I don't know what your DVD is going to tell me that helps me get an unregistered gun. Any gun I buy is unregistered. Uh, so I, I, anyway, I just, this is one of those pet peeve, like piss me off kind of conversations. <laughs> well, it's, there's a record of that purchase uh, if you buy it from Bass Pro. But uh, the, in many states, it's still, of course, legal. Now, it's not anymore in Colorado. I would say, unfortunately, and I do think it is unfortunate, that in many states it's still legal to do uh, private party transfers with uh, without having to go to a dealer, without have, having to do background checks. Um, I know that there are those that think that's unresponsible or irresponsible. Um, but the fact is, is I think most American gun owners, when it, where it comes to doing private party transfers, try to do the best that they can, that they evaluate those sales. In many cases, they request to see a concealed handgun permit uh, so that they, you know, and, and I, I used to do that. I used to, when I listed guns on, on my local site, yeah, Jacob's got that new, that new dog of his and uh, still uh, working on getting that little bugger trained. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, you know, I used to, when I used to be able to do the local listings here in Colorado, I'd say, face-to-face tra- you know transaction and I want to see a permit you know because that's that's really easy to do you know it, it's a really I, I was only interested in selling to permit holders because that told me that I know I'm not selling to a felon because they wouldn't have that document if they were right um, but anyway that's beside the point yeah that's Riley that's Riley practice which is yeah. good advice and good practice but not relevant to the argument right at hand so but I do think we need to clarify your comment about you know, if I go buy a gun at Bass Pro Shop, there's a record of that purchase. So let's clear because that 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 could be a for you know some people might misunderstand your comment, Riley. So when you say that there's a record of that transaction, clarify what you mean. There's a record with the dealer, and you know, meaning that they record. They have to every every item in the inventory that comes in is documented as it comes in. It's 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 transferred from a, a wholesaler. Uh, perhaps, or directly from a manufacturer to that dealer, or sometimes it's transferred from a private party if that dealer accepts used guns, um, where that is going to be recorded on their books. And then when it leaves their hands, uh, the the 4473 is filled out and things are documented again. And uh, so that, what I mean by there's a record, that's, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. With the dealer. So it's not by record. You don't mean they don't have to be subpoenaed by the way. ATF can show up and ask to see those records anytime. ATF can inspect them, but they cannot. 
but but there are some regulations and there and there are ATF rules, so it's not not law, but there mm-hmm. are ATF rules that determine the ATF's ability to confiscate those records. And and basically they only get their hands on those records if the dealer goes out of business. Uh so they can, anyway, they can inspect the, them on site though. They can inspect them, but that's mm-hmm. different than them taking them or acquiring sure. them, sequestering them. But that, so, that, that, that you know, that's really the, yeah. Anyway, the, the neither here is, nor there. We get yeah, we get way too wrapped up in this idea of you know unregistered guns. It's like, well, none of my guns are registered, and I buy most of my guns from dealers. So I just think that we need to, as an industry, if we want the uninformed to stop sounding stupid about us, then we also have to stop being uninformed. So when I see you know pro-gun organizations trying to profit from the concept of gun registration, it really pisses me yeah. off. I, I think it get, just gets down to the, I mean, at the core, it's just law-abiding Americans that are concerned with government overreach, which historically happens, and they want to because they have the right to do so, they want to have guns that nobody knows about. And that's fair. That is that is totally fair. By the way, I have here a Polymer 80 uh, lower you know, receiver for a Glock. I think this is a Glock 19 model. Uh, those of you that are on Facebook, you can see this is the jig that it comes with. And um, yeah, so here, actually this is a Glock 17. Uh, here's my ghost gun, Jacob. Oh no! I'm sure that's the only one you have that the government doesn't know about. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Um, here's here's one other thing I wanted to touch on, is that this journalist makes they they, they seem to make that, that they want to make a point of how easy it was for them to buy this, use the jig and the drill bits and everything, and finish this out and build out this gun because then you can buy the slide and the barrel and all the springs and the trigger and all that stuff um, without, you know, you just go online and order that stuff, right? So they seem to make, make they want to make a point of how easy it was to build, right? And, but, but the thing is, is they, they build an, first of all, they build an inoperable gun. They can't even do a function check to make sure that it functions, basically, that they assembled it correctly. And number two, I'll just know, I haven't yet built one of these yet, although I've been thinking about doing it here at some point. Obviously, I have one in my hands. Um, but they, how do they know they built a gun that will actually work? And what I know talking with others that have done this is that it sometimes can be finicky if you're not careful, uh, or just sometimes there's a little bit of fine tuning that you got to, that you got to do on that gun to actually get it to run reliably. So just because this is out there does not mean it puts in the hands of criminals guns that are even going to reliably function. Um, if they don't know what the heck they're doing or if they don't bother to test and things of that nature. So anyway, I, I just thought it was interesting. This journalist was like, hey, look how easy this is. And I, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it too. But it's not actually quite that simple. All right, moving on. This is the actually the title of, of what I at least labeled the episode today on, on uh, Facebook. Can Americans ditch guns the way we ditched cigarettes? <laughs> I'm basically morally opposed to even reading this article. <laughs> This is. I, I really, I, I'm really just too angry about the headline for me to even give any energy whatsoever to reading it, and I, I legitimately mean it. Like I read the headline, I'm like, I'm not reading this because I don't blame you at all. No, I, I, I refuse to read this article. I'm, I'm angry enough with the headline that I do not need to read it. 
to you for for anyone to associate my firearms, a Second Amendment guaranteed constitutional right, to cigarettes. That's immoral. <laughs> that that's a problem. Well, okay, cigarettes I, are illegal too. C- cigarettes are totally illegal. I, I have a so, right to smoke. I do. Go to but. go to town. It's not a constitutionally protected right, but that's really not relevant. There's a difference <laughs> here because the the challenge is that as a society, we universally accepted based on scientific evidence the cigarettes caused only harm and provided no good, essentially. Um, that is that the, the potential medical benefits that can be derived from tobacco can be achieved without the nicotine and the other things involved in smoking a cigarette. So we agreed as a society, essentially, we came to a conclusion you know, unanimously as, as a planet that cigarettes aren't good for us. And we have been attempting to essentially eradicate them for you know a couple of decades, and and so for for that to be associated with firearms, that just pisses me off. It, yeah. it, it's it's I mean, are, what are you are you suggesting that then we should let cops smoke? You know, it's okay for cops to smoke. We're okay with cops smoking, but you know, but <laughs> but, but the rest of know, us we, no. We just don't think no. anybody else has any needs any of those military style cigarettes. Yeah, co- cops in the military can smoke o- only them. Yeah, that's fine because there's an application there. You know, but this, but the average civilian, they just, they don't need cigarettes. Like, come on, obviously, like I, I, I find it mind blowing that at any degree we could accept that law enforcement, and military should have guns, and therefore they are good for some use, right? If you, if you accept that law enforcement and military should own guns, that, that guns should exist for those guys, then you're inherently saying that there is some benefit derived from them. That they have an application in society, right? A, a positive application, and specifically yeah. that that application would be to stop crime and protect life. And so, if you accept that, and I think everybody universally does, then how 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 in the world could you make the the description that you want to ban them and get rid of them from society like we have the cigarette? And the other thing that really pisses me off about this is that the headline infers that we have done away with cigarettes in our society, which we have not. Yeah. After decades, you know, I mean, it, it is, to, to many of us, it is very difficult to understand that today a teenager could begin smoking cigarettes, right? But it does happen all the time. So, so anyway, I'm just, yeah. I'm just pissed. The head, I, I won't read this. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Uh, <laughs> cigarettes. Uh, it, we got to be careful, Jacob. We don't. We don't want to offend listeners because I know we have listeners that smoke. First and foremost, how many people do you know that smoke that don't <laughs> wish they could quit? Right. I. I have yet to meet I, I, an adult that smokes that that feels warm and fuzzy about it and has zero I, desire to ever actually, stop. Actually, I I've known an individual or two that they they say they they really have no desire to quit that they really enjoy it um sure. but yeah, uh, but but here's the thing i don't think anybody denies uh the fact that cigarettes are harmful to your health um guns can be harmful to your health <laughs> but you 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 get to the point jacob that there are many great societal benefits for having and possessing guns uh we're going to talk about some of those things things here in just a few minutes as we get into our justified save stories for today. Uh, I 
you know, it's believed that about a million individuals per year, a million incidents per year in the U.S. where guns are used to prevent some sort of crime, right? Meanwhile, we have what, like 30,000 deaths per year from firearms uh, that most of those are, you know, not uh, accidents necessarily. I mean, there are many of those that are accidents, but, you know, a good chunk, about a third of those are homicides and a good chunk of those are suicides, unfortunately. But, uh, and Jacob's dry firing. Come on, man. <laughs> no, just teasing. I dry fire all the time too. And- I'm, I'm burning off the steam from the <laughs> cigarettes headline. Sorry. I, I just had to, you know, provide the context for those that are listening only. They're going, what's the click, 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 click. Uh, when we talk about dry fire practice, this is what we talk about, you know, take advantage of every opportunity to, to get practice in. Um, so anyway, what the other side is trying to do, Jacob, is stigmatize guns and gun owners in the same way that cigarettes and cigarette smokers are have been stigmatized. Now, it could be argued that cigarettes, rightfully so, have been stigmatized in society. Um, but, you know, my own personal life has been greatly affected. Every male... Uh, you know, my, I'm willing to say it, my father, my stepfather, my grandfather for a long time were smokers. Okay. Has it, and did it affect all three of their lives in negative ways, in significant ways? Absolutely. Would I have loved to have seen their lives prolonged? Well, two of them are still alive. I'll make that clear. Um, but uh, would I love to see their lives prolonged, to, to be healthier, to enjoy their life better, more fully? Yeah, I would, right? But we should not be stigmatizing guns because, as you said, this is protected by the Second Amendment. It is a right. It's a basic human right, I think, to be able to defend ourselves. Why are we stigmatizing something that that potentially protects and defends the lives of a million Americans per year? There's some ridiculous things in this article Jacob refuses to read. I have to share this, Jacob. First of all, a quote from Houston Police Chief Art Acevedo. Uh, He, and keep in mind, guys, most of the time, police chiefs of major cities are anti-gun. And and the sheriff in that same area will be pro-gun because that's just the way it works. Okay, and he says this in relation to the Santa Fe High School shooting. I know some have strong feelings about gun rights, but I want you to know I've hit rock bottom and I am not interested in your views as it pertains to this issue. Please do not post anything about guns aren't the problem and there's little we can do. Um, He exemplifies the very viewpoint that the other side, that, that, that they hold, that they are not interested in our viewpoint. They simply want to bang their fists on the table until they are heard and guns are outlawed. And that's all they care about. Okay. Secondly, here's another ridiculous thing that I found in here. Um, this is a statement from Texas. Now, by the way, this statement's not, <laughs> let me, let me back up. What he, what this next gentleman says is not what I'm pointing out. It's what the, the follow-up to this is. Okay. So first of all, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick says, had there been one single entrance possibly for every student, maybe he would have been stopped. And I think he's just talking about some basic kind of hardening of our school's security, okay? And I do think that that's something that's important, that with schools, uh, we should, you know, make some reasonable efforts to harden them. And one theory, or not, not even so much a theory, because I think it can be proven, you know, shown to be to, to work. Um, but one idea there is to 
limit the access points to into the school, right? Okay, that's all he's basically saying, all right? Then school or a security expert named Arnett Heinz quoted in this article says, and this, let me make it clear where, where this person's quote starts, okay? Because this is actually quoting the, the writer of the article first. Sure, let's make it easier for the shooter to attack. With one exit and entrance, now quote of, of Arnett Heinz, you create a killing field for someone. So the author of this article is implying that, that what they took from Lieutenant Governor Patrick's statement was that we should only have one exit and one entrance of every school, I was like, holy cow, like, are we so stupid, uh, you know, where it comes to this kind of stuff? Um, we have one entrance, maybe, that's secured, and and all the, I mean, as far as, like, it's a, a limited access point, and all the other entrances are locked, right? But all exits still work, so people can get out of the school. Holy smokes. This is what we're dealing with is uninformed, uneducated, or unwilling to think through things critically, Jacob. Well, you know, you can't fix stupid, as they say. (laughs) Uh, I don't think it's about stupid. I think it's about informed and and educated. And and, willingness. uh, And 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 openness. People are unwilling to actually educate themselves or to, to look at the issues in an intelligent fashion. Sure. Yeah. Anyway, we we bring these stories to you guys so and gals so that and Stephen, by the way, just checked in and said he's from Texas. So uh yeah. Um because this is what we have to counter, okay? This is what we're dealing with. Uh we need to be, by the way, respectful. We need to do our job as responsible gun owners and be educated on the issues. We need to sp- Speak intelligently to them. Jacob's already touched on that, the need to get the semantics correct, okay? Um, so that we put forth our best uh, uh, image, if you will, of what we are as gun owners, okay? That's really key. That's really important because we're going up against a side that is not interested in a, a reasonable, logical, intelligent debate. They simply, as uh, Houston Police Chief Acevedo, uh, Acevedo, yeah, said um, that he is not interested in our views. Here's one school district or one area. It's not actually a school district. Excuse me. Let me let me back up and clarify that. It's not a school district, but in uh, Monroe, New Jersey, Lacey High School students were given the opportunity recently to get some firearm training. Lacey students, according to this story on app.com, they have free gun range training. This was put on by a local range there, Union Hill Gun Club in Monroe, New Jersey. It opened its doors on Sunday, it says here, to students like Stesny. This is quoting a student, Ronald Stesny, and their families to learn about firearms training and safety. I think this is awesome. So instead of engaging in this oftentimes fruitless uh, and, you know, debate, um, they have decided to, to take steps to educate students. Um, 15-year-old Ronald Stesny, a Lacey High School freshman, um, 
walked away knowing it says here the heft of a real gun, how much harder it is to aim in reality versus video games, and just how important safety is when handling firearms. It's not the guns that are a danger, it's the people who wield them, he said. If you have practice and training, it's just a self-defense item. And I think it was Stesny as well. Where is it? Um, yeah, down below here it says, he came Sunday as a mini-protest to what happened to his fellow students. Um, and this was... Re- is a result of recently there were two students in New Jersey that were disciplined after posing with firearms in photos posted online. So he that drew him out to come to this class and get some free firearm safety training. And I would say that by all accounts, based on reading this article, that all left better educated, better informed, better trained, and more safe. And probably less likely, frankly, to do... Uh, to commit criminal acts with those with those same guns. Yep, I I applaud this effort by this uh, this gun range, and so hopefully that becomes a trend. You know, where hey, ultimately the best way to combat ignorance is with education, knowledge, and experience. Right. So yeah. that's a good lesson for all of us. Yep. So here's just a little bit of good news for you all. Uh, so there you go. That brings us now to our Justified Saves segment of the podcast, uh, where we feature each episode, or each week, we feature several stories where law-abiding regular Joe and Jane citizens defend themselves because they were able to have a gun. This first story I previewed earlier uh, in, in the episode, I mentioned that uh, my the first story is probably my favorite, just because of the way this, this goes down. Uh, on WLTX.com, uh, CBS affiliate uh, Channel 19 in St. Louis, Missouri, um, reports, grab the, this is the, this is the headline, grab the gun, attempted robbery caught on doorbell camera. It says a man was ambushed by three young people as he climbed the stairs to his front porch. It was all caught on his ring doorbell surveillance cameras. The video shows a man in his 80s standing on his front porch when three teenagers approach him and point a gun in his direction. So they're armed. There's three of them. They point a gun at him. And this is his response. He calls out to his wife to, quote, bring out the gun, end quote. And the three suspects quickly run off in the direction of Halliday and Compton Streets. The, the homeowner called St. Louis police who told him they would be stepping up patrols in the neighborhood. It's like a kick in the stomach in a way, said Josh Burbridge, who lives next door. It doesn't necessarily change the way that I feel like I'm going to, like I'm going to be out in my neighborhood because things happen in St. Louis, but it is a real bummer. Now, it's true, actually. St. Louis, unfortunately, has a higher than average crime, uh, violent crime rate. Uh, but uh, Jacob, your take on this, I, I just, I love this guy. I mean, I, I would have preferred that he had his gun on him, right? That's probably like the the big you know lesson takeaway from this, but I just love love it. You know, wife, bring out the gun. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because these these stories often give us some interesting food for thought. I'll give you my food for thought. When I read it, my first thought was, "Man, I wish he'd had his gun with him." Yeah. And then I thought, "Wait a minute." You know, in hindsight, it could have been worse if he'd had his gun with him, depending on how he had acted with that gun. Right? Imagine if he'd had his gun on him and he drew it and. The teenagers freaked out and started shooting at him, and he got hit, and he shot back, and he missed the teenagers and hit some other person across the street or his dog that's on a leash that he's holding. Um, I'm not saying that he shouldn't have had the gun with him because that's clearly always the best practice. I guess what I'm trying to say is that some, some critical thinking here about, okay, let's say he had his gun with him. 
what might be the best way to approach the situation? What is the best way to deal with this? How far away were they when he first saw them? He's got one hand that's occupied. If he's not going to look over his dog, then he's down to one arm. So any sort of response can be limited to a one-hand draw and fire. Because he's holding a leash of a, I don't know, 30, 40-pound dog. And so anyway, I just some critical thinking there. When you think about this, sometimes you can get the best lesson by, by doing those what-ifs. Well, what if he'd had the gun on him? Then what? Um, but in this case, yeah, it worked out really well. Just say, honey, bring out the gun. And boom. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's like, oh, that's good enough for us. We're out. Yeah. We don't know what their intention was. We don't know right. what they were looking for, but we know that they they believe they can find easier victims somewhere else. Exactly. This is, it, it dovetails very nicely with what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about the societal benefit of the Second Amendment in the United States of America in that we have situations like these where this we we know very i mean we don't know exactly what these juveniles it says teenagers so juveniles we don't know exactly what they were going to do but what we do know is that something bad was going to happen to this 80 something year old man and probably his wife and because there is an individual right protected to defend oneself they had a gun we assume it actually never says that they had a gun or that the gun came out simply says that his just him stating honey bring out the gun that's all it took for these three teenagers to go ooh yeah see you later that's awesome yeah it, it is awesome i mean honestly think about it this way guys if we were all responsible americans if we all took it upon ourselves to carry a gun or carry a weapon, and we were tra- trained with it and ready and willing to respond. I mean, think about it. If, if all law-abiding Americans would do this, crime would disappear like almost overnight because there would be no more easy victims anywhere. Obviously, we know that can't happen, but like that's the idea. That's, you know, th- that's my utopia, Jacob. Is where everybody is responsible, responsibly armed. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you another interesting lesson from this one. Uh, two, two lessons. One is that how brazen. You know, this is the middle of the day. Yep. It's, it's light outside. There are three attackers. At least one of them is clearly armed. And th- and this man is, doesn't have. I mean, if I was armed, you don't have a ton of opportunity to respond unless your situational awareness is really freaking good. Because these dudes just, they're kind of walking down the sidewalk, and then all of a sudden, gun comes out, points immediately homeowner, and they walk up the steps. So I guess this is just a call to you know be that much more vigilant and, and make sure your situational awareness is good. My other thought I had was how awesome that this dude has this camera on his fancy little doorbell. Because had he had to respond somehow, if he'd had to fire, if he'd, if he'd had his gun on him and he... You know, decided he needed to fire, how valuable and important this video footage might have been in his defense. So anyway, just another yeah. two couple thoughts there, you know, that we might take away from this. Yep. Yep. And it wasn't working a minute ago, but I am now playing uh, on the screen here, the uh, video. Um, and, and you can see just how, I mean, it, it, they come right up into his face. Gun is right in this man's face. And uh, we don't know exactly when he says the uh, now famous words, honey, bring out the gun. (laughs) But uh, at some point here, we see them 
uh, turn around and, and skedaddle. So anyway, there you have it. Awesome stuff. Uh, responsibly armed Americans putting a stop to this kind of crap in our societies. Next up, WSET.com. This is in uh, uh, Roanoke, uh, Virginia. We've got here the story. Sorry, the scrolling keeps uh, lagging on me, so it's all over the place. Police, man shoots juvenile after he pulls out gun during motorcycle sale. Uh, Roanoke police said officers responded responded to a report of a shooting in the area uh, around 6.30 p.m. Friday, May 18th. When they got there, police said they found a juvenile who had been shot in the neck. Officer spoke with John Billet, age 47, at the scene, who told him he had made arrangements online to meet with Rodnicka Richardson, age 20, to sell a motorcycle. During their meeting, Billet said, this is the victim, said that Richardson, the one of the uh, uh, apparent uh, uh, attackers, if you will, or, or criminals, was joined by Khalil Graves, also age 20, and the juvenile. When he asked for payment before giving Richardson the motorcycle's papers, the juvenile pulled out a gun and demanded the motorcycle. Billet, who was armed, shot the juvenile in the neck. Roanoke Fire EMS took the juvenile to the hospital where he is being treated for non-life-threatening injuries. Richardson and Graves were arrested and charged with robbery and taken to the Roanoke City Jail. Charges on the juvenile still pending. So there you go. Bam. You know, this is another case where these guys think they have a victim. And what they don't know is that is not the case at all. This man was armed and prepared to defend himself. Yeah, I, I like the story a lot. I mean, we've talked about kind of the, you know, the Craigslist purchase kind of situation several times, so I won't harp on that one. But I do think there's some interesting things to point out here. Anytime I see that the BG, the bad guy or bad gal, has been transported to a hospital for non-life-threatening injuries, I always find that interesting. I don't think I've ever brought this up before because what that inherently means is this person was not stopped physically. It means that the shooter, the good guy in this case, uh, while he may have drawn his gun and fired around, which you know hit this person somehow in the neck, if it's not a life-threatening injury, that probably suggests that the BG was not physically incapable of continuing to be a threat. Yeah. Uh, you know, gazed the skin or went right through or whatever, whatever it was. It wasn't something that the that the BG fell on the ground, de- 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 you know, in, 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 in incapable of carrying on. You know, the attack. They were more so what I would call emotionally stopped, right? They yep. just ultimately decided that it wasn't worth continuing to attack this individual, that they should stop now. Whether they thought that by continuing to do so, they might be more, more injured or they might get in more trouble, or they might be more likely to get caught. Often BGs stop their attack for emotional reasons, not because they're no longer physically capable of carrying them out. And that it'd be an interesting data point next time you run your, your data research, Riley, on all your stuff to see you know, how often people are emotionally stopped. But there might be a data point you already have. But, but anyway, it does make me think that, you know, we often read these stories and I'm a, I, I want to make sure that we don't give the listener the impression that any time you have to act in self-defense with the firearm, that it's, you know, a shot or two and boom, people are going to be, you know, completely, you know, physically stopped and you're going to be good to go. Because yeah. what, what you're really hoping is that with the shot or two, they're emotionally stopped and you've survived the encounter because it's probably going to take more work than that to physically stop them. And if they are really determined, if they're not emotionally stopped, then you got to be prepared 
to, to keep the, your violence switch flipped and rain down the terror necessary to physically stop someone, which is significantly more than you know a shot that grazes them in the neck. Yeah. We can't count on or bet on the fact that our response is going to result in an emotional stop, right? But it does tell us that we need to be assessing throughout the duration of our response that, yes, when I decide it's time for me to act, as this man did, that I'm going to flip the switch, that I will respond with violence of action, that and I'm not going to stop until the threat is no longer a threat. Now, that assessment needs to be ongoing continually, and that assessment needs to take into account that, yes, when I see, I mean, it's it, it's not, what's not important, what is not important is that I see that this person's dead, but that I see that this person has stopped doing whatever it is that they were doing and or it appears that they no longer pose me a threat. If I shoot the guy in the neck and it grazes his neck and he drops the gun out of shock and surprise and then goes, uh, I don't want to fight this fight today and they give up. That's, you know, we have to, we have to stop pulling the trigger at that point, which is, it just goes back to, I mean, it's one of our earliest episodes of the podcast. Uh, if you, you know, if you are, if you've been taught or trained or your mindset says, you know, you shoot to kill, then you've been set up to fail because you shoot to stop threats and whether it's emotional or a physical stoppage of some sort is irrelevant. Once a threat is no longer a threat, we got to be ready and paying attention enough to know when to stop pulling the trigger right yeah yeah yeah. great takeaway cool so uh well you you had a great takeaway yourself in in that you pointed out and i don't know if actually i am collecting that data point i may have to go back and and start pulling that because i think that is an interesting an interesting takeaway you know because we do see those stories i don't know it it's hard sometimes to read into it. You said that whenever you read these stories where it says they were transported to the hospital for a non-life-threatening wound, um, we don't always know what is life-threatening or not until maybe they get to the hospital, right? I don't know. But uh, but it is something interesting to at least consider. I, I know we are capturing in the data that we're pulling from these stories that uh, whether the attacker or the thug or whatever, that whether he you know is dead or not, as a result of the uh, uh, hero responding. But anyway, final story. Jack in the box shooter feared for his safety, says he shot in self-defense. And I saved this one for last because this is probably the story that, you know, goes the most deep in that there's some, there's some interesting things to, to the way this played out. Uh, we have here in Medford, Oregon, um, excuse me, in Bend, Oregon, but this is a Medford, Oregon man. Uh, He said he was confronted by a transient armed with a knife Monday night outside a Bend fast food restaurant, which happened to be a jack-in-the-box, which aren't they anti-gun? Don't they have a, aren't they a gun-free zone? They have a a corporate policy against firearms in their stores or their restaurants, whatever you want to call it. I've never seen one that was posted, but they may have, like you said, a corporate policy. It's kind of like Buffalo Wild Wings. I believe they have a corporate policy, but I've rarely seen where it's actually posted. Yeah. 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 Anyway, um, so outside, it does say that he was outside the restaurant, so maybe he never went in. Um, He said he feared for his safety and shot him with a handgun that he is legally allowed to carry as a concealed weapon. Ben police say Robert Joseph Garris, age 39, shot Christopher Michael Nolan, 39, also 39, multiple times outside the Jack in the Box. Uh, He, uh, Nolan, allegedly pulled out a knife at about 9.38 p.m. and approached Garris, who was staying at a nearby motel. 
police said. It's just one of those things that you hope never happens, Garris said Wednesday, but it happened and now I've got to live with it for the rest of my life. Garris said Nolan approached him acting aggressively and wielding a large hunting knife. Nolan was with another man. That's the suspect said Garrison or who said Garris. He said that Nolan was another man with another man who added that he did not know either individual. Garris said he wanted the men or warned the men several times before firing. Nolan was acting like he was on drugs. Garris said, and he seemed to believe Garris was a police officer for some reason. He had an obvious problem with law enforcement. He, the man is quoted as saying, Nolan was taken by the Bend Fire Department to uh, a hospital with life with life threatening injuries. In this case, Jacob uh, Garris was taken to the Bend Police Department for questioning and released. Uh, it's expected that the bad guy in this case, who was shot, uh, is, is anticipated to recover uh, from his injuries. Uh, the the good guy is a lawful holder of a concealed weapon permit. Um, but well, the interesting thing here is it seems to me, as we read it, and assuming it played out the way we read it, that this is a justified use of deadly force in defense, right? Right, uh, the way we read it, sure. Yeah. But the the article see, it seems to make an effort to make sure we understand that there have not been charges placed against Garrus, the good guy, uh, and that you know, they seem to imply almost like there could be something, you know, but I don't think there's going to be anything that comes out of this. Yeah, not based on the narrative we're reading. It doesn't, doesn't seem likely. Yeah. Obviously, you know, once police do an investigation, they're, they're going to, I mean, there could be more to it than what we obviously read here. Um, that's, that's fair to point out, but from, we share the stories based on what we perceive as good guys versus bad guys. We could only work with the facts that we are given. And, and frankly, in a lot of cases, we don't often see the media, uh, consistently follow up on stories like this. Uh, occasionally we do, but this could be one of those which just kind of swept under the rug somewhere at some point and we never find out. So as far as we know, good guy stopped a bad guy that approached him with a knife and seemed like he wanted to harm him because he thought this guy was law enforcement. So I don't know. what Any lessons that you can see from this, Jacob? Um, we, we mentioned that Jack in the Box are going to free, you know, policy. So I, I was going to bring that up. So I'm glad you did as well. Uh, I think that this is another one of those great equalizer questions, you know, you know, guns, knives, you know, we've talked about London's knife problems. And so I'm grateful to see that in this case, the gun was the equalizer that allowed for a law abiding citizen to be able to defend himself against an attack that could have turned out very deadly. No, I don't, I don't know that I have much more to add. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I think, there's yeah, there's not probably a whole lot more to add other than just a re- general reminder to, as best as you can, be aware of your surroundings. Um, this did happen, I believe, at night. Uh, nine, that's right, nine thirty-eight p.m. So it's night. It's chances are it's dark. Um, it's not reasonable for us to say that we are going to be perfectly one hundred percent, three hundred sixty degree. Uh, fully, you know, situationally aware at all times. That's not reasonable. I know there's guys that say, oh, I'm aware all the time. Oh, oh, I'm never going to have somebody sneak up on me. Um, that's not reasonable. It's not even physically or mentally possible because we just can't be solely focused on situational awareness at all times. However, what I would add, and this would be a takeaway, is that there are times based on because of the situation or the circumstances, the location, the time, whatever it is, 
where we need to make sure we elevate that that situational awareness, right? Right now in my home, I don't have to be at, you know, condition orange, right? It's it's my home. It's reasonably secured. Uh, I need to be mindful. I need to make sure I've taken active steps to protect and defend the home, that security measures are in place, you know, some redundancies and so forth. But I don't have to be in condition orange, situationally aware when I'm in my home. I don't even necessarily have to be that way when I hop out in the truck later today to drive to my kid's school. I live in a reasonably safe neighborhood. I It's it's daylight. Uh, you know, Not to say that thing, uh, something bad couldn't happen, but my point is I don't have to be like red alert, red alert, red alert, right? All the time because number one, it's exhausting. And number two, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. So the lesson here is when we are in situations where the situation warrants it. Okay. And, and I've kind of touched on that when it's nighttime, when it's dark, where it's a location that might be more, you know, uh, might have a tendency for something, you know, to happen. Like, uh, for instance, going to the ATM late at night, I've had to do that. I've, you know, there's been some times where, oh crap, uh, I have an emergency situation. I need to get some cash. I need to get it now. I don't prefer to go to the ATM at, late at night in the dark. If I do though, if I have to do that, then that is an appropriate time where you got to be, you know, constantly, you know, you got to be checking your six at all times, looking around like that's the appropriate time for the five minutes that you are running to the ATM and using the machine that's the appropriate time to be 100%, 360 degree, you know, really just watching yourself and being situationally aware. Does that make sense? Is that fair to say? Yes. I, I knew yes, you'd agree. Yes, good call. <laughs> you know, I, I know this is probably nothing new for some people, but but don't don't get tripped up in thinking that we've got to be, like I said, in that like condition orange all the time. Uh, use the appropriate level of situational awareness uh, where it makes sense. A good, another good example, Jacob, is this uh, older gentleman, the first story we shared today. Now, as we see the video, he is facing the street. He has just come up his step, apparently, and he's he's facing the street. He is aware of these three uh, men approaching him. Okay, And I don't know what this guy's physical capability is. I don't know how quickly he's able to move, uh, but you see three juveniles that they didn't look good to me. Like You saw the video, and it's like, you might they're wearing just, hoodies. They're acting, you know, suspiciously. Yeah, it's daylight, and they've got the hoodies on, right? You know, covering their heads. That's 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 a pre-indicator of something is about to go down. My my point is that that man he didn't he probably didn't have to be in condition orange, you know, as he's walking up his front step, but at least being somewhat aware. And as soon as he took note, something should have triggered and gone. Wait a minute three kids in hoodies in broad daylight, I should maybe make an effort to try to get in the door of my home, lock the doors as quickly as possible right now before they get, you know, to the step here to, or on the sidewalk or whatever it is. So anyway, use your brains, use appropriate situational awareness for the, the situations we find ourselves in. Okay. That's, that's a, that's a, I think a very valuable lesson. I hope that that's like one thing you take away from today's episode and go, ah, that's that's good. Thank you. Um, not to prop myself up too much or anything, but wow, thanks, Riley. Yeah, you're welcome, Jacob. I knew that would like be earth shattering for you. <laughs> good stuff. Well, 
that wraps it up for today's episode. We appreciate all those of you joining us on Facebook uh, Live today, and also many of you, thousands of you that listen to these podcasts after the fact. Um, we couldn't do it without your support, and we appreciate your support of sponsors and products and, of course, of, of our company directly, concealedcarry.com, guardiannation.com is a part of that. Today's episode, in part, is brought to you by Guardian Nation, guardiannation.com. And the Guardian Nation or GN Live event that we've got tomorrow evening, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern with John Korea of Active Self Protection. We look forward to seeing many of you check in there. Today's episode is also brought to you by Glock eTrainer. Check it out at GlockeTrainer.com and also by uh, the Barrel Block, which ConcealedCarry.com is now selling and it has available on our site. You can, you can head over to ConcealedCarry.com forward slash barrel block and you got to be careful it's spelled b-a-r-r-e-l-b-l-o-k so block is spelled b-l-o-k concealedcarry.com forward slash barrel block super cool product yeah Yeah. you were to talk talk on a little bit more yeah the barrel block i don't know if we should call it like the barrel block slash mag block because it's actually you get two products for one but when you buy the barrel block and it's extremely affordable it's 13 bucks you get two two things. First is the barrel block itself, which is essentially a, a long polymer uh, you know, piece of plastic that goes through your open chamber of your semi-automatic firearm in down into you know through the ejection port into the chamber and into the barrel, and it sticks out the end of the barrel so that there's a visual you know indication that that it is installed, which would tell you that it is safe. And it is safe because it is chamber specific and it fits into the barrel in such a way that it's impossible to chamber around into the chamber of the gun. So when you see the, the, that indicator sticking out the end of your barrel, it's a very clear indication that that firearm is 100% incapable of firing. And so that's really, really, really cool. So it just makes it so that you're a lot more comfortable and confident when you're doing your dry fire practice at home or wherever it might be with your real firearm that you can feel confident that, hey, this, this is definitely safe what I'm doing here. The second is that in the package, it comes with three mag blocks. Now, the mag block is essentially this little thing that's shaped similar to a, to a cartridge, but it goes in the top of your magazine. You insert it just like you do a round, and it prevents the follower of the magazine from engaging the slide lock of the gun, which essentially allows that you can rack the slide without it, without it locking back. So imagine that you're doing some dry fire practice, and you have the barrel block installed, and you feel very confident using your real gun. Then you go to train a reload. So you drop your mag, you insert a new mag, and you go to rack the slide. Well, your slide is going to lock back, and it shouldn't. It's not supposed to lock back. If it was real, if you had real real ammo in the gun, it wouldn't. Now, you can use dummy ammo, and we sell dem- dummy ammo too. And there's plenty of that for sale. But if you insert the mag block, then you're good. It, it will prevent the follower from engaging the slide lock, and then you can practice things like reloads and a handful of other malfunction clearing type things without slide lock. So pretty slick, $12.99, comes with one barrel block and three mag blocks. It is chamber, or, or excuse me, it is caliber uh, specific. So pretty slick product. And for those of you who are a member of Guardian Nation and are receiving the May Guardian Gear Box, we actually included the 9mm barrel block in your box. So it's probably arriving right about now. Yeah. Cool stuff. Yeah, those. Uh, I got my shipping notification last night, Jacob, that uh, my... May Guardian gearbox is on the on its way, so that's pretty exciting. I'm excited to get uh, my my barrel block on hand for the first time. I've I've played with them, uh, played with yours, 
uh, and we really appreciate uh, Jason and uh, uh, crap. Hang Alyssa. on, Alyssa. Thank you. Sorry, I. <laughs> it's just you put me on air, and crap goes whew, out the brain. Uh, they're they're good folks, and they're running a really fine, upstanding business, American business, making a very valuable training product. So we appreciate your support of the Barrel Block, concealedcarry.com forward slash Barrel Block, B-L-O-K, to learn more, to purchase one. If you're a GN member, you're getting a 9mm one in the box, which is cool, but you might want to get one for your 40, 45, 223, 380. We got those for sale online, so go check them out. Well, with that, everybody, it is time to check on out of here. Thanks for being a part of this episode, episode number 227 of the podcast. We will catch you later this week on Thursday for episode 228. We've got some more great interviews coming up that were recorded at the uh, NRA show. We've got other interviews that are scheduled or on the calendar with other individuals in the industry. Lots of cool stuff coming up. So stay tuned from the podcast. We'll catch you here in a couple of days. Until then, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care, everyone. laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.